This is the I Make a Living podcast, brought to you by FreshBooks, the number one cloud accounting solution for small business owners and their teams. Earlier this month, in a long-sought and unexpected victory, the U.S. Supreme Court ruled against workplace discrimination on the basis of sexual orientation or gender preference. This may leave you asking, how can small businesses be in compliance with the new regulations? And what can you do to move the needle further? So we created this special bonus episode to offer you new insights on a conversation that has been happening for decades. This week, in 1969, the Stonewall Riots began. It was a series of demonstrations by members of the LGBT community in response to police brutality in Greenwich Village and across the world. Stonewall was 51 years ago. And while we have made some serious strides towards workplace equality, we still have much to do. So in commemoration of Stonewall Week and Pride Month and the Supreme Court ruling, this bonus episode will address the intersections of the many movements happening around sexual orientation, gender identity, racial inequality, and the global pandemic. Whew, it's been a busy month. And I could think of no better person to unpack all of this with than Mina Gurgis. He was a panelist at a 2019 I Make a Living live event in Toronto. He's a model and influencer of Egyptian descent who made a name for himself recreating famous celebrity Instagram images. The popularity of his work has led to numerous international campaigns with big brands such as Calvin Klein and Sephora. Here he is telling me how he makes a living. I make a living through a lot of different ways. And I think that's what a lot of us now in the creative industry have to do is we just have to get creative. My main source of income has been through modeling. Every now and then I do some influencer work where I'll do a sponsored post. I've been trying to get into acting and and I actually recently, because of COVID, it's been hard to get back on set. So I started writing. So I've been writing about several things, uh, including body image and queer identity and a lot of these different things. But we got to wear a lot of different hats to make a living now. Certainly, certainly, especially like you were saying with COVID, you have to innovate. Mm -hmm. So take me back to the beginning of your career. I first became aware of your work through Instagram and you kind of created your own platform. Tell me about that. I want to say like six years ago where I was, I just had this idea to recreate celebrity photos after an ex of mine made fun of me for being really feminine. And uh, my brain took me to this, this one Beyonce music video where she's like on the phone crying. And in my head, I was like, does he think that like, I'm, you know, bawling my eyes out, like so sad over this breakup, just like Beyonce in this music video. And that's kind of what started that. It was strange, though, because it was before the culture at the time was completely different. We weren't really used to seeing men wearing makeup. We weren't really used to seeing things like drag race or boys wearing makeup on Instagram. So it was this really weird and strange thing to a lot of people. But I loved what I was doing. So I kept going with it. And it actually only took a until two years ago when I started being able to make money off of it because of the shift in our culture of how we've become more accepting and more embracing of people who are doing different things. But, you know, I built this incredible platform and it took a really long time before I was able to actually just even be able to make money off of it. So I'm really grateful for where I am 
now, but I know firsthand what it's like to create something that's different. And it takes a lot of time before people can really understand or see value in that different thing that you're doing. Well, I have to ask, especially as a woman of color, often there isn't a lane for us. And many times, this is why we see so many people of color creating their own businesses and launching their own lane. How much of that journey was launched out of necessity of not feeling like you could do, you know, a traditional career path? Yeah, um, I completely agree with you. For me, the intersectionalities of my identity as a man of color, as a queer man, um, as uh, a gender fluid person, there's all of these things that made it very difficult, not just to pursue a traditional career path, but that also made it more difficult for me to pursue the career that I wanted to is this because again, you're you have to carve out your own path. A lot of people don't see value in what you do. A lot of people don't get it. It can be scary to a lot of people when they see something that is different. So in the beginning of my career, there was, and still to this day, there's been a lot of pushback and a lot of a lot of people who just don't get it. I like what you said about out of necessity because I, I live here in Toronto. And when I wanted to get into modeling, every single agency here in Toronto just rejected me. And they just thought that there wasn't really a space for like curvier guys or like more plus size guys. And I just remember thinking, but we need it. Like just because no one sees the value in it doesn't mean that we don't need this kind of representation. So I started traveling to New York once a month last year and working there and building my portfolio that way. And that has eventually led into my most recent campaign with Calvin Klein. And that was a really big moment for me to be like, you know, again, if you're a person of color, if you're queer, if you have all of these intersectionalities, yes, you will be shut down and you'll be looked at differently. But we have to continue being persistent and we have to find that route. We have to find that thing that works for us. Just because someone doesn't see the value in what you're doing doesn't mean that it's not an incredible thing. I have to be honest, though. It takes a lot of bravery, Mina, for yeah. you. Like, It's not like you're doing this kind of work in a silo. You're doing this kind of work in the public eye on Instagram where people can talk back. I imagine that you've dealt with a lot of judgment, a lot of haters, a lot of people that just didn't understand you or what you were doing. There was a point in my career where the negativity got so bad that I had to just delete my Instagram. And like I deleted it for eight months and that was my livelihood at the time. But the comments were so mean to the point where I just couldn't be online. Like people were body shaming me. I'm Middle Eastern and it's illegal to be gay throughout the Middle East and a lot of the countries. So when people from my own community see, you know, this openly gay person and, you know, they see me being very unapologetic and very proud about my identity, their instinct is to tear that person down. And so the kinds of awful things that I was told on a daily basis were just so awful. But again, I saw the necessity in that. I Everything that I've done in my career so far comes from the fact that, like, I didn't have anyone creating these images for me or, you know, stories of hope and, and, and resilience and all of these things. So I know the necessity of it. Like I, and that's why I keep pushing. That's just kind of what you have to do, especially if you're a creative is like you take the negativity and you figure out a way to channel it into something because naturally a lot of people will have something to say about you. And you just can't let that stop you from like living out your dreams and doing what you want to do. What was that moment when you decided to go back online. That's huge that you took the thing that you had built and it just, the chaos and the conflict was just so great that you, you shut your entire account down. What was that moment when you said, 
I, I have to return and do this. This is my calling or this is my livelihood. It was actually a really important moment in my career because up until that point, I read every single comment and I let that get to me. I let that make me question myself. I let it, I, I believed a lot of the things that people were saying. So throughout those eight months, I had to learn how to develop a stronger relationship with myself offline. I needed to learn how to find value in myself offline. And I needed to just build a lot of confidence back again, offline without looking at any comments, without feeling like my self-worth is tied to how many followers I have or how much business, you know, I'm getting off of Instagram. So I really tried to work on, on myself that way. And when I came back, I had this completely new refreshed perspective on my online identity. And it was that these things that people say about you online have to stay online. Like they can't come back with me into my everyday life. And I'm so grateful for that because I taught me how to have really thick skin now. And it also taught me to see value in what I do. A lot of our listeners are entrepreneurs, small business owners. They may have employees that are LGBT. They may have customers that identify differently from them. And I know you're in Toronto, but <laughs> <laughs> last week there was a landmark Supreme Court case which made it illegal to discriminate or fire someone in the workplace because of their sexual orientation or gender identity, which is huge. And I really want to help our listeners understand what that means for them and how they can create a culture in their business that is inclusive. So let's just begin at the basics, because I think some people just haven't even really been exposed to this conversation. And we've been throwing around a lot of terms that people might not understand. So let's just start with, okay, we, we hear this term LGBTQ, lesbian, gay, bisexual, transgender. And then a lot of people are confused about the Q. Can you just enlighten us a little bit about the Q? The Q is questioning. So someone who may not know or someone is, who's still on that journey but has a lot of different possible, you know, ideas. The LGBTQ is just an overarching umbrella term for anyone who for sure knows their identity or maybe doesn't know but should just know that they are also still valid and that they're seen just because they're still on their journey. It doesn't make them any less important or any less valid. Okay. And then the term queer, which some people have heard in different contexts. Mm -hmm. How does that term resonate for you? And how do you think it relates to the larger community? People in the LGBT community have taken it upon ourselves to reclaim a lot of these words that were used to hurt us and instead recontextualize them in a way that works for us. The term queer, I think, and more encapsulates this idea of an existence, of a being that isn't just who am I attracted to. It's for me, when I use the term queer, it's also an understanding of the fact that I dress a certain way that is more uh, liberating for me. It means that I can wear makeup if I want to. It's not just about the fact that I like guys. It's just, you know, a bigger umbrella term that encapsulates a lot of different things besides just your physical attractions to the same sex. Okay. I also heard you say the word gender fluid. Yes. It's, it's a really big thing in queer community as well. And it's the idea that you don't have to dress 
um, in the way that society puts you in, in that box of how you should dress. Or for me, and I think a lot of other gay men, a lot of us are gender fluid in the sense that like we wear makeup if we want to. A lot of guys wear makeup and it's like totally like a completely normal thing. Nail polish, uh, women's clothing. Like for me, I always say like, if it's cute, then I'll wear it. I don't care that it's in this t-shirt or this pair of pants is in the men's section or the women's section. Like, I don't care about that. If it's cute, if it makes me feel good, then I'll wear that. So gender fluid is just the idea that you can express yourself in any way that feels comfortable to you without having it be related to a certain like label. Yeah. I'm seeing that a lot of the bigger brands in clothing actually not just in clothing. I was buying a bike the other day and I found that a lot of brands are now producing material that is gender neutral. And this is really different for a lot of people and anyone that might be in fashion as an entrepreneur. This is sort of revolutionary as far as the history of fashion goes. Yeah. In my campaign with Calvin Klein, when we were getting dressed for outfits or when we were getting our makeup done, it was like the same treatment that they had for the models who were female identified. I got that same treatment. They were like, you know, if you want to get your nails done too for the shoot, like you can do that. I think a lot of people my age, uh, millennials and younger, are really trying to push against these idea of boxes. No one wants to be told how they should act, how they should dress, what they should like. We want to make the decisions for ourselves. And I think that's what this kind of revolution is more about of like, you know, gender fluidity or gender neutrality. It's like, let me decide what I want to do versus you telling me that, you know, this is not made for me or that this is made for me. And I remember when we first met, we were at the I Make a Living live event in Toronto last year. And we were chatting for a while. And then I think I was going to use a pronoun in a conversation. And then I realized I hadn't asked you for your pronouns. So I did. And you were sort of shocked. Tell everybody about that experience and why it was so surprising to you that I had asked you what your pronouns were. The thing is, is in the queer community, it's kind of a thing where, you know, you can never assume how someone identifies. So we've normalized it a lot more in our communities to be like, by the way, like, what are your pronouns? Like, I just want to make sure that I'm not offending you. But I didn't know that it was a thing with non-queer people or with straight people. So when you had asked me that, I was like, whoa, I didn't know that this kind of like understanding had become a lot more mainstream. But I think for anyone who does have employees and if you know that they're under the, the queer community or the LGBT umbrella, in order to make that person feel safe, the easiest way to do it is to just kind of introduce yourself or be like, hey, by the way, like, can I just ask like what your pronouns are? And that tiniest little act of acknowledging that you understand that someone needs to to do this, that could make that person feel so much safer because someone can look a certain way, but that may not reflect how they feel or how they actually identify. So that's a huge thing. Yeah. And I see that there's sort of a, there's a normalization, of course, of straight culture. And a lot of people just aren't even aware. And again, this conversation comes up a lot also in the Black community. We've been talking a lot about how people who are not of color need to advocate for Black people right now. And I've been also hearing that the queer community needs straight allies to also be advocating for them. So would you say it would be good practice? But 
I'm thinking about it now. Why didn't I ask another person on the panel what their pronouns were? Like, why didn't I offer instead, offer up my pronouns? Like, hi, I'm Demona, she, her, right? So that you don't have to be singled out to identify your pronouns. Yeah, I think these are little things that people can do to, again, foster that idea of a safe space and to really make it like just that little thing of you offering up your pronouns that will automatically, you know, signal for everyone to start doing that. And that's the difference between an environment where someone in the workplace doesn't feel comfortable or is scared or doesn't know. Maybe you want to say that, you know, you want to tell everyone that you're queer, but you're worried that people won't understand what that means. So it affects how you see yourself in your workplace and that can be really hard. So just that tiniest little bit, exactly what you just said, can make all the difference for your queer employees to know that they can feel safe. And again, it's because I think in the queer community, we have a lot of these conversations and these are very normal things within our spaces, but we don't know if non-queer or straight people know about these things. So it's like the smallest thing that you can do to kind of let this person know that you are an ally or that you are at least open to understanding and open to learning. You are queer, but you're also Middle Eastern. And we've talked before on the show about how the intersectionality of certain people or certain businesses can make you feel marginalized or can limit your opportunities. And I would love to reframe that just in the way that it's shown up in your life and the way maybe even how it's shown up in the launching of your business so that we can see this as something that is empowering rather than limiting. I love that you say that it's more empowering than it is limiting because I I completely agree with you. For me, like my intersectional identity has meant that there has been an overlap of a lot of different parts of who I am that have made it a lot more difficult for people to understand me. And at a certain point in the beginning of my career, again, it was a disadvantage in the sense that people would see this like brown kid and they would be like, oh, not only is he gay, but he's also like wearing makeup and he's doing drag. So it was this weird, it makes it more difficult for people to understand you when they see someone who belongs to so many different communities and they don't really get it. For me, I have found that it really has worked in, for my business in the sense that it only took up until two years ago for other people to start seeing value in me and to understand that being intersectional is not a negative thing. It only makes you more special and it makes your work a lot more unique when it's there. So when it comes to businesses, this is where I would say for anyone who has employees who they know have a lot of different intersectionalities, that's where the whole idea of allyship comes through. So people have to be advocating for us and supporting us and making sure that there are opportunities for us because our intersectional identities can be seen as a disadvantage and they have been historically a disadvantage. But it gives us a very incredible perspective on the world. And I think it's a very valuable thing for a lot of employers to have employees who are very intersectional in their identities. Right. You can reach more audiences if people feel that they're being represented. I'd love to hear any other suggestions that you have for our entrepreneurs as they're building their businesses and want to be inclusive. I think the biggest thing, you know, we we see this with, with Pride Month or Black History Month. It's like you can't just support certain marginalized communities for a limited amount of time, right? You have to adapt and 
take on this idea of inclusivity throughout. It needs to be part of your practice every single day, every single month, not just supporting queer people or donating to LGBT organizations in June or just donating to like black owned businesses or supporting your black employees in in the month of February. There needs to be inclusivity needs to become this thing where all marginalized people, especially from intersectional identities, know that they are supported every single day on the job and know that their employers are there to support them. Just in the same way that a lot of straight people feel safe every single day at work, they need to make sure that the same goes to their marginalized employees is that they have to also feel safe and feel included every single day. Your business needs to innovate and take on inclusivity as like one of the pillars of your, uh, at the core of your business. And what about for any queer entrepreneurs who are listening? How can they sort of lead people to understanding the queer community better or being more inclusive in a way that's organic to their business? For me, the thing that I have done a lot that I think has helped is to, for example, like if I'm talking about my gender identity or the way that I dress or doing makeup, I don't just do it like during Pride Month. It's something that I've done every single day and, and people know that that's part of my identity. So I would encourage a lot of queer entrepreneurs to not feel like they have to put themselves in a box of only talking about certain things during Pride Month. I would encourage you to talk about the things that you have to address every single day and kind of foster that conversation and develop that conversation on a, on a daily basis so that you can see that progress and that you know that you're not just kind of doing this thing for a limited amount of time. And this is the crux of this series of bonus episodes. These conversations in the entrepreneurship community are important. If we're looking to make lasting change, we need to continue the conversation around workplace intersectionality all the time, not just in reaction to current events. Three actions that you can take to make your business more inclusive of sexual orientation and gender identity today are one, encourage use of pronouns, not just for queer employees, but for everyone. Two, Revise company policies, act in accordance with the law and your values on everything from workplace dress codes to hiring and firing practices. And three, rethink how you categorize your customers. Should you be making gender binary products or would your customers and business benefit from being more fluid? This isn't a one and done kind of thing. We're all learning and growing together, and so should our company policies. So keep thinking about diversity and inclusion and how you can be a leader and not a follower in business. Season three will be back on September 14th, but the conversation will continue on our Facebook page and in our live webinars as current events shape the future of entrepreneurship. If you're not a member of our Facebook community, we encourage you to join us at facebook.com slash groups slash I make a living, or you can just search the hashtag I make a living to find us. Everyone is welcome. And if you'd like to continue this conversation with me on social media, I'm on Instagram, Twitter, and Facebook at Demona Hoffman. And I deeply appreciate those on social media who've been sharing our past episodes, including the Black Lives Matter episode with Eric Williams and our Black History Month series. If you tag me, I'll be sure to share your post. To all of those inspiring people around us using their voices, platforms, and resources to fuel change, we see you, we're listening to you, 
and we're ready to do the work alongside you. This show is made by the following people. Paco Erzmendi, producer and director. James Morris, composer and editor. Leo Shell Villanueva, associate producer. And me, your producer and host, Demona Hoffman. And remember that you have the power to make an impact because it's your business.